All right. Everybody good? It's good baptism. Uh, I don't think we mentioned this, but if, if uh, you've trusted in Christ and have yet to be baptized, that would be something to consider. And uh, Brian or myself would be happy to talk to you about that. The more baptisms, the better, right? All right. But we only, we have to get a new microphone for the baptisms, right? <laughs> it was in the water. I thought it fell over the edge, but anyway, anyway. Brian's first thing he said was, uh, I'll, I'll pay for that out of my... <laughs> <laughs> We're baptizing and he's worried. We, you don't have to worry about Brian. Uh, hazards of the job. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. This is the second week of our series through this letter, letter to the Hebrews, and like last week, we'll be looking at one and a half verses. Yay! From the second half of verse 2, and then all of verse 3. But for context, I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 4. This is like sort of one set, and then... And then it follows from there. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And now we're going to talk about the son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited in more excellent, is more excellent than theirs. On the evening of May 21st, 1882, when Charles Spurgeon preached from this text, he announced, I have nothing to do tonight but to preach Jesus Christ. He then went on to show that he was following in a well-established tradition, glorious tradition of the church. He pointed to the book of Acts, where Luke, writing of the early church, says, In chapter 5, verse 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that that Christ is Jesus. And then in Acts 8, we read, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And later, when Philip climbed into that Ethiopian's chariot, Luke writes, Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. And in Acts 9, after Paul's conversion, we read, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And finally, Spurgeon pointed to Paul's own words to the church in Corinth. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So as we turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, I feel I'm in great company. Knowing that the best thing I can do is, well, the only thing I can do is preach Jesus Christ, which might seem obvious. But in the church today, it's often said that the preacher must be relevant and practical. He must first and foremost address the needs of his congregation, and I don't disagree with that. The problem is uh, the perceived needs of the congregation can take precedence over preaching Jesus Christ, over proclaiming the whole of God's Word. And when that happens, sermons become nothing more than uh, self-help 
talks about all kinds of practical, relevant things. Parenting, dating, marriage, finances, discovering your purpose in life, etc. And again, in the right context, I'm not opposed to learning what the Bible has to say about these things. But we must understand what the early church and the Apostle Paul understood. That the most relevant, practical way to address any of our needs, especially our greatest needs of knowing and growing in Christ, is to preach Jesus. To preach Christ. So as we turn to Hebrews chapter 1, I want us to see Christ, specifically the sevenfold superiority of Christ, the title of the message, which is not to say that Christ is only superior in seven ways. He's superior in every way. Remember, Hebrews was written to, and we learned last week, Jewish Christians who were experiencing persecution. They were being tempted to turn away from Christ and return to Judaism. So the author, again and again, makes it clear that in every way, Christ is superior. The new covenant in Christ is superior to the old covenant of the prophets. In fact, last week, we saw his superiority to the prophets long ago. At many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. God spoke first through the prophets and then through His Son. And the main point is that Christ is superior to the prophets because His message not only fulfilled their messages, but He spoke God's final, comprehensive, complete, conclusive revelation. So we saw that Christ is superior to the prophets, and then next week we'll look at verse 4 and through, I'm not sure how far we'll go in chapter 1, but more than, I promise, more than two verses, more than a verse and a half next week. But, but there we'll see that Christ is superior to the angels. Apparently that was a thing. There, there was some confusion about that. But today in Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, we're going to look at Christ's superiority in seven ways. And the first way is Christ is superior because He is the heir of all things. Verse 2, But in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the heir. Which makes perfect sense, because when Hebrews was written and throughout most of history, sons were the natural heirs. So the text flows from sonship, God has spoken to us by His Son, to heirship, whom He appointed heir of all things. Now this is prophesied in the Psalms, in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which Hebrews will quote in verse 5, which we will get to next week. But in Psalm 2, we read, The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possessions." Here the Son, who is Jesus, is specifically said to be the heir to the earth and to its peoples. And Hebrews expands uh, that to include all things, which includes everything. Christ is the heir of everything. Heaven and earth, the universe, all matter, all spirit, it all belongs to Christ. And appointing Christ uh, the heir of all things is, is completely justified for two reasons. First, because he's the creator. The, uh, and second, because he's the redeemer. As creator of the universe, he is the natural heir. 
Paul makes this uh, very clear in Colossians. By the way, if you were with us during our study in Colossians, you'll notice a number of repeated themes here in Hebrews, because both letters focus on the supremacy of Christ. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, we read, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. As the creator of all things, he has the right to be the heir of all things. Also notice that Jesus not only created all things, but they were created for him. This is about him. Everything in the universe is created through him and is for him. Therefore, as creator, creator, he's the natural heir to all things. But in addition to his natural right of inheritance as creator... As Redeemer, he's, he's earned, if you will, or, or purchased by His blood shed on the cross, an inheritance of souls. Which means if you are redeemed by Christ, you are His inheritance. This is really mind-boggling, really, if you think about it. Uh, we are Christ's inheritance. It's so stupendous and maybe a little difficult to understand that Paul prayed in Ephesus, that the church, having their eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. His inheritance in the saints. Paul was praying that his readers would understand how highly valued they were by Christ, in Christ. Think of it. Jesus is the heir of all things. Heaven, earth, beyond everything, things we can see, things we can't see. But we, the saints, are His glorious inheritance. We are His treasures. But there's more. In Romans 8, 17, of the redeemed, Paul writes, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Well, that's crazy. Because Christ and Christ alone is the heir of all things, and because we are children of God, we belong to Christ, we are in Christ, then we are fellow heirs with Christ. As the song tells us, I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by the blood, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm part of the family, the family of God. As those who are adopted into God's family... Through Christ, we are joint fellow heirs with His Son. Paul makes this clear again to the church in Corinth. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, church. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Because you belong to Christ, all things are yours. Now, I must say this, I don't understand that. I don't know exactly what that means, what it looks like in future glory, but it clearly means something spectacular. Because you belong to Christ, all things are yours. For we, now, for we know, what we know now is that, come what may, Christ our Creator and Redeemer is the heir of all things. And because we belong to Him, our inheritance will be glorious. And this is very relevant and practical as we travel this sod, 
as we face the challenges of life, we know our future is secure in Christ. So first, we see Christ's superiority as the heir of all things. And second, we see His superiority as the creator of the world. So we've talked about Him being the creator and the redeemer. Now let's just focus in on Christ as creator. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, verse 2, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. The word used for world in the Greek is ionos, and it literally means age, or since it's plural, ages. It can mean the world, it can mean the universe, but it also means periods of time, even eternity. Jesus created the earth, the world, the universe, space, time, matter that we see, matter that we can't see. And this is this becomes a little mind-boggling when we think about our expanding universe. So, grab your uh, number sense here for a second. Stephen Hawking, who was called the most brilliant theoretical physicist since Einstein, said in his best-selling A Brief History of Time that our galaxy... We should have the picture of the galaxy there. Yes, thank you. Our galaxy is an average-sized spiral galaxy that looks to other galaxies like a swirl in a pastry roll that it is, and that it is over 100,000 light years across. You know what a light year is? It's not a year. It's the distance light travels in a year. 100,000 light years is about 600 trillion miles. You got that? 600 trillion whatevers. Hawking says, We now know that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself containing some 100,000 million stars. And it's commonly believed that the average distance between these 100,000 million galaxies, each 600 trillion miles across and containing 100 million stars, is 3 million light years. You got that? Mind blown. The vastness of the universe. Well, in addition to that, the work of Edwin Hubble, based on the Doppler effect, has shown that most galaxies are moving away from us. So the universe is constantly expanding. Some estimates estimate that uh, the most distant galaxy is 8 billion light years away. And that it's racing away at 200 million miles an hour. Got it? Why do I tell you this? Because it's one of the ways to emphasize. In all of that, it comes down to the supreme creative power of Christ. Through whom also he created the world, the ages, heavens and earth. The universe, space and time, eternity. He created every speck of dust in the 100,000 million galaxies of the universe. He created everything we can see and everything we cannot see. He created every atom, that subatomic, I mean, that, that submicroscopic solar system. If you know an atom with the neutrons and protons at the center and the electrons spinning around. As we've already read in Colossians, for by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. The beginning of John's Gospel, 
One of the first things he tells us about Jesus is, verse 3, chapter 1, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Clear? Everything was created by him, and nothing was created without him. Do you see the superiority of Christ? I mean, think about it. We humans, with all our science and technology and supposed knowledge, our AI, right? We can't even create the tiniest speck of dust, much less a living creature. But Christ created all things ex nihilo, out of nothing. He created everything. Okay, so far I've emphasized Christ's superiority in creating the material universe, but let me just briefly mention he also created everything spiritual. As David prayed in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God can, through Christ, create in us clean hearts, renewed spirits. In fact, as Paul makes clear to the Corinthians, he can make us into new creations. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus can take whatever you are, whoever you've been, your nothingness, out of nothing, he, cre he can create a new person. There's nothing in your heart or your mind or your soul that is beyond the creative power of Jesus Christ. No matter how unique you may think you are or your problems are or your sins are, Jesus Christ, the creator of the ages, can bring his creative, renewing, transforming power into your life. And that's pretty practical, right? So second, we've seen Christ's supremacy as the creator of the world. And third, we see his superiority as the radiance of God's glory. Verse 3, he, the Son of God, is the radiance of God's glory. That word radiance is important for us to understand. The Greek can mean uh, reflected brightness, and there are some translations that say he is the reflection of the glory of God. But it also means something extremely bright in and of itself. And this is the sense that, uh, in which we should take it. There's a vast difference between reflection and radiance as different of the, as the functions of our uh, sun and moon. The moon reflects light. It's all right. You know, it's out there. You can see it at night. Whereas the sun radiates light. It's the source of physical light. It's so bright you can't even look upon it. Jesus does not simply reflect God's glory. He, as God the Son, is part of it. This, is shown at, uh, this was shown on the Mount of Transfiguration when His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as, as no one on earth could bleach them. This describes Christ's own intense radiance. He is radiating God's glory. The Nicene Creed says uh, that he is God of God, light of lights, very God of very God. So bottom line, Christ shines forth the glory of God. He is in himself and, and, uh, glorious. And when you see his glory, you see the glory of God. So third, we see Christ's superiority through his radiance. And this becomes more clearly more clear when we get to our next point. Fourth, we see his superiority as Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. 
Verse 3, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. The word translated exact imprint is from an industrial thing. It refers to the image of a coin which perfectly corresponds to the image of the coin press. Jesus is therefore completely the same in his being and nature as the Father. However, there's an important distinction between the Father and the Son. They both exist exist separately, as do the coin press and the image on the coin. So, in a, uh, I, I can use no other word, but mysterious way, the Father and the Son are distinct from one another, but the Son is the exact imprint of the Father. They have the exact same nature. Therefore, they are distinct yet one. We see this in the first verse of John's gospel. He begins his introduction of Christ with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, the Logos, Christ, the revelation of God, was with God. This shows the separateness, the distinctiveness of Father and Son. The Son is with the Father. But John also says, and the Word, Christ, the Logos, the revelation of God, was God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is all God, very God of very God. As he himself said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So in Christ, we have one who is distinct from the Father, but is also the exact imprint of God's nature. And this is all wrapped up in the, again, mystery of the Holy Trinity, which we will not go into any further at this time. Bottom line, though, Jesus is the superior revelation of God. He radiates God's glory like nothing else, and He's the exact imprint of God's nature. Therefore, when we see Jesus, we know just what the God of the universe is like. We know how He thinks. We know how He talks. We know how He relates to people. As we saw last week, God has spoken in His Son. In Christ, we have God's supreme communication, uh, His final revelation. So fourth, we see Christ's superiority in His deity. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. And fifth, we see His superiority in in that He is the sustainer of the universe. I'm having trouble with these S words, this supremacy and sustainer and all this stuff. Okay, bear with me. He's the radiance of the glory of God, verse 3, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We already saw that Christ is the creator of all things. He created all things out of nothing. But after he created, he didn't just sit back and passively watch uh, what happened. Oh, this, it wasn't an experiment that he was wondering, what would happen if I did this? He's both the past creator of all things and the present active sustainer of all things. He's actively holding all things together. And how does he do this? Hebrews tells us by the word of his power, specifically by his spoken word. The writer is very clear. He doesn't use the Greek word logos, the word as revelation, but rema, word, the spoken word by the power of His spoken word. Just as the universe out of nothing was called into existence with the spoken word, and God said, 
let there be light, and there was light, and you can go on from there in Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let the waters bring forth life. And Anyway, so also the universe is sustained by the speaking voice, the word of the Son's power. Again, this is reflected in Paul's letter to Colossians. And he, Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's holding it all together. From all those spinning galaxies to our own solar system, to every atom with its electrons orbiting the neutrons and protons, he holds it all together. Without the power of his word sustaining creation, everything would literally fall apart. I'm not a theoretical physicist. I know you thought, but my son is. He really is. And he tells me that physics identifies and studies the forces that hold everything together. Gravity, electromagnetism, strong and weak nuclear forces, just to name a few. But my question is, where do those forces come from? And how and why do they continue to hold us together? Well, with due respect to physics, Hebrews is clear with its answer that Jesus Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is the force behind the forces of nature. He sustains the physical universe. And like we saw with Christ as creator, Jesus not only sustains the physical universe, he also sustains our physical, our, excuse me, our spiritual lives. He creates in us clean hearts. He creates us as new persons, and he sustains us with the power of his word. And in Psalm 55, David writes, Cast your burdens on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And to the Philippians, Paul wrote, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, sustains us in our trouble and continues to work in our lives. He will sustain us to the end, to the day of Christ Jesus. So fifth, we see Christ's superiority in His ability to sustain the universe, both physical and spiritual. And sixth, Christ's superiority is seen in that He is the purifier for sins. At the end of verse 3, we read, after making purification for sins. The author of Hebrews was, uh, has detailed the superiority of Christ on a, on a grand, universal scale. He's the heir of all things, the creator of the world, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature, and the sustainer of the universe. And then suddenly, the writer moves to Christ as the one who purifies us from our sins. We go from Christ's relationship to all things, the universe, God, and His glory, to His relationship to us and our sin. And I think it's here that Christ's superiority becomes most relevant and practical. Here, Christ, in all His superiority, humbles Himself and becomes directly involved in our messy lives. Let me try to put this into perspective. If we could be transported to the end of the universe, and then journey back to earth, passing all the galaxies Christ created, seeing the vastness of the glory of His sustaining power, 
maybe even getting a glimpse of His divine nature, seeing the radiance of God's glory in the spinning, expanding universe. And as we travel, taking in the galaxies, the nebulas, the stars, the black holes, if you can see those things, I don't know, we gain a clear understanding of Christ's creative and sustaining power. And we're overwhelmed as we remember, because Hebrews tells us that everything we see belongs to Him. It's His. And then we approach earth. We continue to marvel at the glory of His creation, seeing all the living creatures that that He made upon the earth and, and under the sea, seeing humanity and all its diversity, knowing that He created each and every one of us for His glory. And then as we enter the atmosphere, we're transported some 2,000 years back in time. We arrive near Jerusalem and we scan our surroundings where we see a man. And we recognize him as Jesus Christ, the heir of all things, the creator of the world, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature and sustainer of the universe. There he is, the one who's superior to all things, And here's the amazing thing. Here's how we recognize Him. Here's the thing I'll never understand in this life. He's he's nailed to a cross. His body's broken and bloody and beaten because He's given His life for my sins. He who knew no sin is becoming sin for my sake. He's taking upon Himself the wrath of God that I so richly deserved. He's giving his life as a sacrificial offering so that I can be forgiven, so that I might be made pure and holy and righteous before God. He's on the cross so that I can enter into relationship with God through him. What what an amazing turn of events. Christ is described in such glorious terms. And then it almost sounds like an aside after making purification for sins. But those five words, in those five words, we see that Christ is Savior because He alone is superior to our sin. Christ alone, who knew no sin, did what no other person or spiritual being could do. He who is the glorious supreme creator, God gave His life for you and me. He paid for our sins with His life. So sixth, Christ is superior as the one who can purify sins. Then seventh, and I actually, just this morning, as I went through this, changed it. Uh, I didn't really change much of the content. I just changed the heading in your notes. So your notes will have one fill-in, but I changed it. Uh, We see Christ's superiority in that he is both priest and king. Both priest and king. Verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So why does the writer, after telling us that Christ made purification for sins, then tell us, why does he make a point of saying he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high? Well, the most obvious reason is that sitting down at the right hand of the majesty, right hand of God, puts Christ in that superior position. He is now, forever will be, ruler, king. And we'll get to that shortly. But first, there's another, maybe less obvious to us Gentiles, reason. 
I say to us Gentiles because the significance of sitting would not have been lost on his Jewish audience, on the writer's Jewish audience. Why? Because a Jewish priest never sat down. Levitical priests were always standing because no sacrifice was ever complete. The borders of the high priest's robe was sewn with bells so that the people could hear him moving inside the Holy of Holies. Otherwise, they wouldn't know if he had been struck dead or not. Picture the high priest entering that holy place once a year, the Day of Atonement, going before God. He's trembling and he's jingling as he bore the sacrificial blood before the Ark of the Covenant and he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. Then he entered and he stood. There he entered and he stood year after year, high priest after high priest, for the work was never done. But Jesus, a superior high priest, sat down. This is what Hebrews tells us in chapter 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because, as Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. Jesus' sacrifice is superior to all others because it alone was able to purify sins. I want us to see the the utter fallacy, even blasphemy, that any one of us, any sinner, could purify themselves. What we that that we with our pride and our greed and our lust and our love for self could ever pay for our own sins with any amount of quote unquote good deeds, righteous works, impossible. There's only one way to purify, and that's through the superior blood of Jesus Christ. In Romans 5.8, Paul writes, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, by His sacrificial offering, behold, the Lamb of God, John the Baptist said, who takes away the sins of the world. The only way to justification, the only way to purification of our sins is by faith, by trusting in the sacrificial shed blood of Jesus Christ, by faith in the finished work of Christ. Paul makes this clear in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So our great high priest, Christ, sat down at the right hand of God, demonstrating that his sacrificial death was sufficient to purify the sins and impart righteousness to those who would place their faith in him. Okay? Now we turn to the other obvious reason. The other more obvious reason, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, because that seat at the right hand of God is the seat of exaltation, the seat of honor, the seat of authority. Jesus is now and forevermore superior to all rulers and authorities, for he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This was prophesied in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And while on earth the Lord applied the psalm to himself, he said, But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. 
The right hand is the place of highest honor and authority. Upon Jesus' ascension, the Lord God, Yahweh, tells Him to sit at His right hand. And at that time, because of what Christ has accomplished, because He humbly gave His life that sins might be purified, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Christ is lifted up. He's exalted as the King of all. All in heaven and earth and under the earth will bow before Him, will confess that He is the Lord. Again, He's superior to all rulers and kings and authorities and governments that have ever existed. And never, getting practical, never forget that because He is our priest, He's redeemed us, He is the rightful king of our lives. He's superior to us. He purified our sins. Therefore, we must submit to him. We must, as we sang this morning, trust and obey him in all things for our good and for God's glory. Pretty practical, right? Trust and obey. There's no other way. Now, let me add one more thing that Christ's authoritative, exalted position at God's right hand provides for us. From this position, Christ does something that's extremely relevant and practical to each one of us. He is our priest and king, and as such, He intercedes for us. We find this not, not in Hebrews, but in Romans. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Paul asks the question, uh, Who is to condemn? Who can condemn you? And the rhetorical answer came, no one can condemn you. And then he explains, no one can condemn you because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for you. Do you see what this means? Really, the heir the creator, the sustainer, the ruler of all things, the divine one who radiates the glory of God, the one who purified our sins and rules over all, that one, Jesus Christ, who is superior to all, is praying for you and me. Do you believe it? It's good when we pray for one another, but it's great to know that Jesus Christ is praying for us. He is interceding on our behalf. He's, I would say, holding us together with His words of prayer. He's our priest, our mediator, our advocate before God, and that's pretty cool, right? One final thing as we close. Again, very relevant, very practical. The same Jesus who is superior in every way. He not only created and sustained you, He not only gave His life for your purification, He not only rightly rules over all things, including our lives, but, and this is is awesome, He desires to be in relationship with you. I know you find that hard to believe. I do. That He desires to be in relationship with me, that is. To all who are suffering, to all who are struggling, 
to all who experience difficulties in this life, to all, to all who are trapped in their sin, to anyone and everyone, Jesus gives this invitation. And when, when I just think about who he is, who we've seen, and then he says to us, Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus Christ, who's superior in every way to everyone, is also gentle and lowly in heart. And in his love and grace and mercy and humility, he invites you and me with our labors and our burdens and our sin to come to him, to rest in him, to have relationship with him, to be yoked. To be yoked means to be connected to him, to learn from him. And given all we've seen today of his greatness, his glory, his superiority, how can we possibly turn down such an invitation? So I'd encourage you, as I encourage myself with these very relevant, practical words, go to Jesus. Take your burdens, your labors, your difficulties, your struggles, your sins to Him. Rest in Him. Be ruled by Him. Receive ministry from Him. Trust and obey Him. For He alone is superior to all our sins, to all our trouble. He alone can create new life in our souls. He alone can, can, can sustain our Christian walk. He alone can purify our sin. So go to Him today. Go to Him every day. For He alone knows and can and will meet your every need. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank You for Jesus. He is... I mean, we've done, the author of Hebrews did some, and we sort of added in some, some words describing him, but no words can describe him. He's beyond amazing, beyond supreme, and superior in all ways, Father. We thank you for him. We thank you that you gave him to us, to our world, to die in our stead, Father, and we, we thank you. And I ask that you would give us uh, the, the willingness, the ability, the desire to trust in him, to trust in him for our salvation and to trust in him to live our lives, to trust and obey him as we walk this sod, for he is supreme in all things. In Christ's name, amen.